The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good day and greetings. And for this Sunday morning talk, I would like to uh, attempt to talk about social justice through a Buddhist lens. It seems that uh, social justice, justice, economic justice, justice with the legal system is a huge issue in this country, the United States. And how is it that Buddhist teachings might relate to this and address this, support us, uh, maybe in the struggle for social justice? People ask that question often, ask the question of me, and people who go back to look at the traditional Buddhist teachings uh, sometimes are a little bit um, troubled to discover how difficult it is to find teachings that are directly related to what we might call social justice. And one of the reasons for that is that the words, the term social justice is only about 150 years old So in English. So even in English writings before the year 1780 or so, it would uh, you wouldn't find the terms, so you couldn't search for it. Same thing with Buddhist texts. However, um, there's a few things. One is that the word dharma uh, could easily mean justice, and that uh, someone who stands on the dharma or is established in the dharma is established in justice. But to say that doesn't say much what it means. And um, and there's maybe a good reason why in the ancient texts we don't find the Buddha talking about social justice and economic issues and legal issues um, in the way that we would like it to, to find and that addresses the issues of our our society. And that is, it's a very different society back then. The Buddha lived in the Bronze Ages. It's a very ancient times. Things were very different back there. And the primary source of governance in the time of the Buddha and the places where mostly he lived during his, his life after he was awakened uh, were, were countries ruled by kings, some of them who are despots, really, you know, absolute, you know, authority. And you get a sense of that uh, in this uh, wonderfully t- terrible descriptions that uh, are given in the texts of the different ways that a king might kill someone. Some of them are quite gruesome and creative in all the different ways. And, um, and uh, you know, the king's word goes. And, and if you oppose the king in any way, it's end of your life, perhaps. And so to for the Buddha or anyone back then to uh, offer an alternative party to the king's party, to offer an alternative protest to what the king is, how the king is governing, probably wouldn't have gone over very well. So the Buddha, instead of talking about these things directly, talked about them indirectly. And uh, he told stories. <clears throat> and stories that, <coughs> excuse me, stories that I think of as fables. Um, and, um, and uh, but uh, these some of these stories, if you unpack them, if you apply them to our situation, um, they do have some perspectives uh, to give us, and 
certainly you get a, a feeling or a sense of what the Buddhist approach, the Buddhist uh, direction, uh, the Buddhist ways in which we would address these kinds of issues, where they come from or what they be, would be. So the Buddha uh, addressed these issues indirectly by telling stories, and um, I call them fables, but uh, maybe um, in his time he could tell these stories because he had a certain authority as a spiritual teacher. And the kings of the time, you know, the Buddha wasn't talking about them directly, but they they were presented as if these were true events that happened many, many years ago, I mean, millions of years ago. And um, in kind of a fable time, uh, the story I'm going to tell you begins at a time when human life was 84,000 years old, 84,000 years, and that um, with the deterioration of the social conditions of the time, people's lifetimes decreased over the millennia until finally they became just down to seven days. That's the lifetime of a human being. And then they got better again. So that's kind of, you get a sense of a fable, maybe going from 84,000 years lifespan to much shorter. And uh, it begins with um, the story of an account of a king who travels across greater India and to conquer it and unifies all of India. And in becoming this, uh, what's called a wheel-turning monarch, um, he acquires a number of treasures. And one of the treasures that's symbolic of his power and governance is that of a wheel. And the wheel uh, probably refers to the chariot wheel, but that was chariot that was used at war. And it was a, a, a kind of a new invention, especially in this kind of context of war, and was very effective. And so um, it was a symbol of power. What the Buddha did, and, the, and others, I think, was they took the symbol of, um, of uh, temporal power and transformed it into a symbol of Dharma power. And this story is part of that movement uh, to kind of appropriate this symbol, to take it away from this kind of violent origin it had, had maybe to something that's much more peaceful. And um, so this king acquired this, uh, this treasure called a... A, a wheel, uh, but it was kind of a mythic wheel or a magical wheel because uh, it was a wheel that was floating above the capital, just like a big wheel that indicated he had the power or something. And uh, But he knew it wasn't always going to be there, hanging in the air, and he told his ministers, you tell me when that wheel disappears. And sure enough, one day the wheel disappeared, and uh, they came to him and said, "It's you know, it's disappeared. And he said to his ministers, well, what should I do now? And the ministers said, well, now uh, you are supposed to become a wheel-turning monarch, meaning you are supposed to become someone who is um, uh, who embodies the qualities of the Dharma, a Dharma-turning monarch. And, um, and, he, and he said, well, how do I do that? And he says, you live by justice, you govern by justice, you uh, s- uh, protect people through justice, uh, and uh, you protect everyone. You protect your family, the townspeople, the people in the countryside, the whole realm. It's your job to protect and guard them and support them in their lives. 
And then uh, very interesting, and this is where it starts getting a little bit more poignant for us, is uh, um, you want to protect them uh, from crime. Uh, let there n- let there be no crime prevail in your kingdom, and and to those in need, give property. So this is one of the key things, the advice that he was given, is uh, is uh, don't let there be any crime. But how do you not let there be crime? You support the people in need. You give them property so they can grow food or do what they want to do. And this was seen then as one of the primary responsibilities for a king in this uh, fable. In addition, uh, the minister said to the king, uh, you should find the religious people, the, the monks, the ascetics, the renunciants, who have become free of craving and clinging. And you should frequently go to them for counsel and hear advice, those who are peaceful and, and uh, compassionate so that's kind of the extent to which he was given uh, teachings. And here we see the emphasis is on, I, I like to think, uh, support the people in need. Protect people and support the people in need. So he did that, and things went really well for a long time. And at some, some point he died, and uh, his, uh, his uh, child became the next monarch. And it went on for several generations. And it followed the same pattern that when someone became a monarch, this wheel would appear in the sky, the wheel would disappear, and the person would get the advice to live in in a Dharma way, uh, to live uh, protecting people and supporting those who are needy. And then there came along a king who heard this advice, but he didn't follow it. Uh, He did not support the people in need. And, uh, and lo and behold, the people who were poor started, uh, some, the people who were poor started to starve and have a very poor, impoverished life. And one of them, in order to support his family, stole, stole some food. Which is, uh, you know, if your family is starving, starving to death, stealing food, some, in some societies, in some law books even, uh, is not really considered stealing because it's uh, the higher need is to keep people alive. And um, so someone stole, and he was arrested and brought to the king. And the king said, Is it true that you have stolen food? And the man said, Yes. And the king said, Why? Because uh, I'm, fo- I'm poor and I'm trying to feed my family. And the king said, Okay, in that case I'll offer you some property so you can make a living for yourself and not have to be so poor. And the man said, thank you, and that's how it happened. But then someone else stole something, a poor person, and the poor person, the same thing happened, and the king gave that person some property. And then the people of the country got a sense, look at what happens. If we steal, the king gives us property. So they started stealing and uh, getting arrested and to go in front of the king. And after a while, the king realized what was going on and said, "This you can't continue. I can't keep doing this. I can't f- give property to everyone this way. So uh, the next person who came uh, in front of him was arrested for stealing. 
uh, he arranged for them, to, for the person's head to be chopped off, just to kill the person. Well, that created a very different c- conditions in, in the realm, and the people who had started stealing, because they were poor, so well, now that the king wants to kill us, uh, we should get weapons for ourselves and defend ourselves. And But they didn't just use the weapons to defend themselves, they used the weapons to steal more and started killing other people. And the society started to unravel. And as it unraveled over a long millennia period of time, the lifespan of people decreased more and more. And, uh, and then there started to be all kinds of other difficulties that um, once it started killing people, they were lying already when they came to the king. They, oh, so they started lying to the king. And the king could catch people who were stealing, and the, and he would say, "Are you stealing?" And they say, "No." And um, so lying became prevalent, killing became prevalent, and then with things deteriorated, sexual misconduct became pre- prevalent, and um, and then uh, not only lying became prevalent, but a divisive speech and harsh speech became prevalent, and then people became increasingly covetousness, covetous wanting, holding, acquiring, keeping things for themselves. And then they became increasingly uh, um, uh, hostile to each other. And, uh, and they started having all kinds of crazy ideas and stories and opinions about all kinds of things. And, um, and, it's just, and then everyone had weapons. And people started fighting and warring and killing and it says in the text that um, uh, parents fought their children and children fought, fought their, uh, their parents and neighbors fought neighbors and it just kind of, things really unraveled. And their lifespans decreased to just seven days. And, and uh, so here we see the unraveling of a society because the ruler, uh, whose job is to, is to care for people, uh, especially to care for the poor, um, is allow is uh, not caring for the poor, and in not caring for the poor and supporting them to come out of poverty, then in order to survive, they start a life of crime. But then the the uh, when when life of crime starts, then it's hard to get back on course, and uh, and eventually there's all this uh, uh, killing of people because they ki- they they steal. The poor people steal, so they're killed. A harsh judgment, harsh legal system, that it makes the whole situ- situation worse. They say that live by the sword and die by the sword, live by hostility and hatred, and hatred is what follows and what grows. And this story kind of conveys this idea of how uh, th- things just becoming worse and worse with the violence and the hatred and the animosity and the lack of care and lack of support that um, existing in society at that time. And at some point, uh, when things got the worst, some people uh, escaped into the forest, deep into the forest that was inaccessible to other people. And for seven days, they stayed in the forest meditating. And after seven days, uh, they came out of the forest. And um, I'll read it says... Um, 
at the end of the seven days, they emerged from their hiding places and rejoiced together uh, of one accord, saying, Good beings, I see that you are alive. And then the thought will occur to those beings. It is only because we became infatuated with evil ways, harmful ways, that we suffered this loss of our families and relatives. So let us now do good. Let us now do what is uh, ethical. In the story, they talk about how things got so terrible in society, so much violence and, and unethical activity, that they even forgot what the word ethics is. There was no, the word ethics disappeared from that in that chaotic time. And so these people uh, come together, and I think this is a very important part of the story, that they go off into the forest, they come out, and they come to a new conclusion. That way didn't work. Let's now live a Dharma life, a just life, an ethical life. Uh, let's live for the good and support of each other. And this idea of coming together in unity, unifying and caring for each other, was radically different than the direction the society had gone, which was highly divisive and fragmented. And then these people started to live an ethical life, and as they did so, their lifespans over the generations got longer and longer and longer, until finally they got to be, once again, 84,000 years. And then the story goes on and says that at the, when it got to be that lifespan <clears throat> and everything was good, there was the king who was living then, the righteous king, the just king. At some point in his, in his uh, reign, uh, renounced the throne, handed his palace over to the monks and nuns, renunciants to beggars, to poor people, so they had a place to live. And he went off to become a monastic himself and went off to practice and uh, practice the Dharma to become awakened and attain the highest level of knowledge and, and liberation that's possible for a human being. And so here we have the Buddhists saying, yes, being a, a king is, you know, one thing, but even better is to really transform oneself so what is most good inside of us gets liberated and freed. And what is the forces of, of, um, of harm, forces of greed, hate, and delusion, are freed up, are liberated from us. So to become a just king, to live with justice in this story, is to make sure that people really make sure and really focus on the poor and to take care of the poor so the poor are not poor, to, bring, to elevate their situation, give opportunities for them, education to them, whatever it takes to pull them out of poverty. And we've seen repeatedly the story that the Buddha kind of in, represents in this mythic story is that um, when the poor are not cared for, when there's no opportunities for them and there's oppression and they're actually subjugated and, and the opportunity to, doors are closed for their possibility to kind of come out of the poverty, that um, it's all too easy to succumb to uh, 
uh, anger, uh, hatred, frustration, crime, violence, addiction to drugs, uh, alcohol, and and life begins to unravel, and it doesn't become so pretty how it looks. And then if we add in unjust uh, criminal uh, 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 systems to that, and put people in long sentences and limit their lives in dramatic ways through through the sentences they're given, it just makes the whole situation worse. And their family, their neighborhoods, their situation keeps unraveling more and more. And um, and so someone has to stop this. And in the in the ancient text, it's um, it's the people who band together, come together to start living an ethical life. And then eventually there comes back these uh, world-turning monarchs, this government, these rulers, who realize again that that, that their job is to care for the poor and to protect everyone else. And that the care of the poor is really a foundation for uh, what Buddhist social justice is based on, I think, in terms of what we can see in the ancient texts. And... um, And... um, so how do we care for the poor? How do we have a country that cares for the poor? And it's nice, I think I like to believe that when you live in a democracy, that in a certain kind of way, each of us is the monarch. Each of us has a responsibility to step forward, to support and make the democracy work. And uh, it's not just a matter of a mythic king who's going to do it for us. But it's up for each of us. And that's the way the story ends. That it's the people who came out of the forest that they realized they had to become different. And the difference was to really be committed to an ethical life. To not kill, not steal, not engage in sexual misconduct, not lie, not engage in divisive speech, not engage in harsh speech, not engage in in, um, empty speech pointless speech, to avoid being covetous, greedy, to avoid ill will, hostility, and to have what in Buddhism is called, Buddhism is called right view. And right view, one of the aspects of it is to really appreciate that uh, everything we do has consequences. They have ethical consequences that uh, ripples from us and back to us, that how we behave is hugely important. And from a Buddhist point of view, there's no real transformation of society unless you live an ethical life, if that's what you want, is a just society to to live in. And it's up for each of us, for me and for everyone, to have that as a foundation and from that foundation to be concerned about poverty in this country and all of us to do what we can to make a difference, to support people, to help them to come out of poverty and learn to take care of themselves in a good and successful way. Allow everyone to have equal opportunities to find their way. So that is uh, uh, one of the teachings of Buddhism that we can tap into, touch into, for looking for Buddhism, for something 
some reference or some support for thinking about social justice. And, um, and that because it's kind of a myth or a fable, uh, it can be adapted, it can be interpreted, I think in many important and valuable ways. And perhaps there can be, I'm not going to do it, but um, many Dharma talks, different talks of taking this fable and uh, looking at it and applying it in all kinds of different ways in our life. And, um, and um, so in Buddhism, social justice is, present, social justice is presented to, through stories. And uh, there was a time in my life where I would have kind of diminished the value of these mythic fable kind of stories and their importance. But uh, it seems that down through the centuries and right up to today, that uh, the people who move society the most are, uh, and religions that move society are often uh, telling stories. And so we have to be very careful what stories we tell and to have stories available that are stories of social justice that hopefully can move society in the right direction. A reference point for all of us. A common vocabulary and stories that we can share and come to similar understanding. So, um, social justice is really one of the great calls of our time. And I hope that in giving this little talk that... um, uh, you will give uh, more thought to issues of social social justice and and all our need the need for all of us to address them so thank you so much and uh, it's wonderful to be here with you <laughs>